in the house. Let me hear your bark. Let me see your bite. Let me see your scar. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. Mediocre Husky Football podcast on the entire internet. Remember to subscribe, rate, review, and so on. Uh, joining me tonight is the co-host of the show who taught us that reversing momentum at halftime is done by watching Parks and Rec instead of paying mm-hmm. attention to football. So, Gaby, mm-hmm. how are you doing this evening? I'm doing well. I'm doing better than I was at like six fifty. No, six like fifteen. On Saturday, but yeah, I before anyone hears that is like, oh, you didn't believe her. I didn't like abandon the game. I just watched Parks and Rec through halftime, and then wasn't like in a hurry. So I it overlapped part of the third quarter simply as a matter of mental health and getting my cortisol and adrenaline levels down because I don't like being stressed out. I don't know how much it amounts to. Whether you believe or not, I definitely stopped believing at one point in that game that we were going to win that game. I think I'm somebody who tends to remain optimistic longer through the process than maybe I should sometimes, and I definitely did not think we were going to win the game once it got to 21 nothing. Uh, that last drive, that last Utah touchdown of the first half, was, it just felt like piling on. I was like, "There's this is like uglier than some of the ugly games we played last year," but it, it you know, it didn't. Turn out that way, did it? I, so let's talk a little bit about that emotional roller coaster. It's it's hard to find a game that was more uh, divided between the first and second half in terms of performance. And you know, it's not just UW's performance; it's also Utah's performance. The the level of drop off for them in the second half was probably not as big as the level of uh, UW's gain in the second half, but it was also pretty profound. Uh, just walk me through, walk all of us through, kind of what it was like for you anyway, going through that kind of just bizarre change in momentum and change in fortunes and everything going wrong to going right very suddenly. Yeah, I feel like um, to, to me the main thing is that I think part of it was just regression to the mean for Utah. Um, and then I think a lot of it also, there was some stuff in the first half. I mean, obviously, UW came out totally flat. Like, I don't need to say that. But there's there were some plays where they just weren't – it looked like they were flat-footed when they thought the play was just about to be over. Like, there was that long-ish, you know, relatively uh, run by one of the Utah running backs. <clears throat> I think it was in, like, late first quarter, maybe mid-first quarter, maybe early second, where – on like the replay, you see like one or two defensive linemen and linebacker, linebacker, linebackers around them, maybe like a safety kind of in the vicinity, who kind of were just standing there, not doing anything because the, because the running back had a guy already dragging onto him, and it looked like he was probably going to come down, and like kind of just not playing to the whistle, you know, and and then he breaks off, and they're all standing there totally flat-footed with their legs practically locked, and. I mean, obviously, it's not like every play in the first half you'd have looked like that, but I thought that was, as, as a microcosm of their first half, that kind of felt like the epitome of it. Um, just not finishing, not um, just, yeah, 
just really poor execution and not really um, having any of that energy. Yeah, I think that's true. And you said it's not every play, but it doesn't take every play. It was just yeah, yeah, enough exactly. plays for things to get really unpleasant for UW. It was, you know, like some of those Bentley third down conversions and fourth down mm-hmm. scrambles. Like they stop them, you know, they get it to third and long or even to fourth down. They're doing what they're supposed to do defensively, and then there's like one little breakdown. You know, whoever was they they didn't spy the quarterback who's not supposed to be a pass rusher, and uh, you know we don't have our defensive end. Ryan Bowman's out for the game and, and don't have anybody sealing that side. And he would just kind of find the space that Josiah Bronson left open because he's not used to playing outside linebacker and there's just too much space there for him to run and so on. Yeah. You know, it's just a lot of little things like that. Let's talk a little bit about the offense. I think that's kind of still we're, we're in a feeling out mode offensively uh, with the new playbook, new quarterback trying to figure out what, to expect and I don't know if this game taught us a whole lot about what to expect because we saw two different Dylan Morai uh we saw two different yeah. or we saw some you know play calling that sometimes was exquisite and sometimes was obscene uh there were a lot of uh you know th- 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 I think the most frustrating thing was probably how ineffective running it into a packed box was, especially on like second and nine, second and 10. And we kept doing it with an extremely low success rate. On the other hand, getting Kate Otten super involved in the second half and some of the creativity, I, you know, coming to mind the, the Terrell Bynum uh, jet sweeps and, and getting the ball in Puka Nakua's hands and uh, closer to the line of scrimmage to move around. There's a lot of good to go with the bad. And ultimately it was enough good, especially Otten down the stretch. So what do you take away from, you know, a game where that will go down as a two touchdown, three interception game for Dylan Morris and a game that had, you know, as many negatives as positives offensively. Did we learn anything about the offense overall in that game? Um, yeah, well, so my main thinking about that is I understand you have a redshirt freshman. You want a running game to be strong so that he doesn't have the pressure on him. But what John Donovan kept doing by, A, a you can't out Utah, Utah. That's not a thing that you can do, especially when they're stacking the box because they know what you're that what's coming. Um, and so what John Donovan kept doing or kept putting Dylan Morris in the position of – Instead of giving him, you know, it being a relatively unsuccessful first down and then running it in between the tackles on second and making that such a tendency into a sack box against Utah where that's already so baked into their identity. Um, I would rather, if I'm Dylan Morris or if I'm just from a probability standpoint, give your guy two shots instead of, it's. I mean, you're not having that much of an advantage on, you know, for any given possession or any given play to have what one extra yard or a one and a half extra yards. Um, so by if you say you're in a position where it's like first and ten, then second and eight or nine, um, it, it's so you're putting him, you're putting Morris in such a better position to ex- succeed if you're giving him a shot at least every once in a while. Uh, to, you know, have two shots to convert that third down on second and third down from, say, eight yards or nine yards or whatever, then running it on second, maybe that gets a yard, maybe two. So now it's like, what, third and seven, and now he only has one chance to convert convert that third. I understand, obviously, that the general 
um, the accepted knowledge is like, oh, if you have a young guy like and a hard defense, like lean on your running game so he doesn't have to do all that much. But then it, I mean, just probabilities wise, obviously against a pretty good defense, like you're not going to be that you're putting your your young quarterback in a terrible position where it's like, okay, you have one shot on this drive. Uh, cross your fingers. I hope you make it. And yeah. especially in a game like Utah-Washington games where possessions are at such a premium because it's, you know, you're not playing like an area team or whatever. It's really just slogging it out. And so the games go, by, you know, they don't, you don't get a shitload of possessions. Um, and then furthermore, when you look at that, the effect of that, like mentally on a quarterback, especially a young guy who knows that any given third down, he's put in these positions so often where it's like, this is it. You don't have a lot of possessions in this game because of the game flow of these two opponents. And you're only given one shot at third down because we're playing Marty ball on first and second and run, run past punting. Um, like, obviously he's going to throw his first and second and third interceptions of the year. Like You don't want him to throw three interceptions in a game, obviously, but if you are creating the circumstances if you could imagine any circumstances where he would do that, it's like exactly what John Don set up of just run, yeah. run, and be like, okay, here's your here's your shot. Like obviously Morris is going to press and make some unwise decisions, and we saw exactly what happened. The the first interception is a perfect example of that, where they they yeah. got down uh, into a potential dangerous area on the field, and I believe it was on a third down, and you could just kind of see him mm-hmm. saying like. I have to make the play here. And the play wasn't yeah. there, but he tried to make it anyway, and it was, you know, just threw it right to the defensive back. I don't really, you know, get too hard on him for the, the other two interceptions. Obviously, the Hail Mary one, that, yeah. that there should be a separate stat for that. It's not even really and an interception. And that second one was so much uh, tie. Yeah, and, and I mean, it was, he was, it was interfered with. It, it wasn't, like, I get why they don't call it in that scenario. Uh, the same thing happened in the Seahawks game. They called, in that situation, they called pass interference. I was underthrown deep ball. The defender doesn't look back, just kind of runs into the receiver with his arms up, uh, interfered with him, made it harder to catch the ball. And you just, you know, that's one of the virtues of throwing the ball deep and underthrowing it a little bit is you introduce the possibility that they call pass interference. It just didn't happen here. Anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about, a little more about the, um, you know, not the, the philosophy behind run the damn ball, but the execution of it in this situation, because, the 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 interior runs particularly were ineffective. It seemed like when they were able to get outside, it worked a little bit better. We talked last week about uh, was this Utah team? There's, there's so much turnover. There are nine new defensive starters. Were they get? Were we kind of catching them at the right time? The answer was no. They you know made our interior defense offensive line that had been really really good, uh, particularly. Ulumu Ale and, and Henry Bonavale to an extent as well, who'd been excellent the first two games, look very pedestrian, weren't getting any forward push. Like very, if you look at the advanced stats, the uh, line yards per carry were way, way lower than even average stats, let alone uh, UW's previous level of uh, performance. Some of that's probably Richard Newton not uh, really seeing any game time after what sounds like maybe not a great week at practice. Uh, do you chalk this up to... Utah being that much better, Utah, UW playing worse, or some combo of the two? Like, where do you put it on that spectrum? I think a little bit of both. I think, but I think it, I, I don't think it can be, I mean, understated how much, you know, getting that first game under your belt makes. I mean, we've seen that with pretty much every team that started the season behind their conference peers, whether that's, uh, 
you know, UW Utah, whoever else, I forget. <laughs> I forget. Oh, Cal. <laughs> um, although Cal's a mess right now. Um, yeah. and their special teams coordinator sucks, but, um, but anyways, um, yeah. So I think, you know, I think all of us expected Utah to be much better than, um, than the team that played USC the week before. Um, obviously there's much better and then there's that. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I think, I think, I think it's probably 50 50. Um, but like, you know, like, like we said earlier, I mean, UW just came out really flat at first, and then, and then putting putting a young quarterback in a position where he's gonna make mistakes. Um, I think I think those those two things are huge. Yeah, and we'd be it'd be a mistake not to at least mention how awesome Kate Otten was. Definitely the most mm-hmm. productive overall offensive player. And then when mm-hmm. Puka Nakua got the ball, uh, he looked really really good. He's looking better every week. Hopefully the lesson here is to get those guys involved earlier as much as possible, not kind of in case of emergency break glass. Uh, we talked a little bit about the defense uh, earlier on, but let's talk a little bit more in detail about some of the weird uh, lineups that were forced by Ryan Bowman's absence. Uh, mentioned earlier that Josiah Bronson uh, kind of lacked speed on the edge, which contributed a little bit to Bentley being able to scramble for first downs. It also seemed like Utah had a, a pretty clear approach tactically of double teaming across the defensive line to try to isolate their running backs against our linebackers, and it was very <laughs> successful. Uh, you know, we saw more in the second half, at least on passing downs, uh, either Sermon or Ulafoshu or both would, uh, you know, come up close to the line and then drop back as kind of a spy or doing that underneath zone, and that seemed to at least limit the scrambling. Uh is there anything else you saw as the game went on or was it like you said earlier, just kind of the things at the margins that we were able to do just enough uh, to stop the running game as the game went along uh, and it started to tighten up a little bit? Yeah, I think there's two main things to me. And and one, yeah, one of them is just what you just said, where I just think they were like more engaged and and playing, executing better and and finishing their plays better. Um, I think the other thing, and this is kind of back – this is kind of related to Utah's regression to the mean, but specifically about Jake Bentley. And I ironically, given how um, poor the UW's whole performance was the first half, I think what the pass rush was able to do, even though they didn't have that many sacks in the first half, I think it was only the, that one at the beginning where he fumbled. Maybe there's a second one. I don't know. Um I think what they were able to do in the first half and then continue into the second half of just pressuring Bentley, even if Bentley, even if they didn't necessarily bring him down every play. Um, if I, and I mentioned this last week that if you, um, if you follow, have followed Bentley's career, that what happened in the second half as a result of all of that pressure is exactly what you would be expecting. Um, maybe not to the point where he comes back from 21 points, but uh, he's re- very well known for um, not necessarily making the best decisions when being pressured and or seeing ghosts after having been pressured a lot. And then, you know, uh, and, and also combining that with trying to play hero ball like he did on that Elijah Bolton interception. Um, so I think that really, I think those two things, um, 
and I, it, so much of it comes back up to ZTF and how he is amazing. Um, yeah. But yeah, that I think I think establishing that early in the game and then continuing it into the second half, I think Bentley's um, turnovers and poor choices were, in, if not inevitable, um, they would have been worth betting on. Yeah, I think that's that's accurate. And, and he's always had turnover issues. He had turnover issues last week against USC. Uh, and as the game went along, it was just kind of like he's going to get a little aggressive. He's going to throw the ball into tight windows. Can we take advantage of that? And ultimately we did. And then you get the added layer of creating a negative play here and there against an offense that's solid but not particularly explosive. And ZTF doing that, you know, kind of makes him a one-man defense. And then you're forcing that solid but not explosive offense to make, uh, you know, big explosive plays to try to come back from the holes that we've put them in makes a huge difference. So, I mean, it was, it was a weird game, uh, got us to three and O it was an absolute feeling of like walking on clouds when Otten caught that last touchdown. And then, um, I, we picked off the pass, I guess it was McDuffie at the end, picked up the, off the pass to, to fully end the game. It was just like, not what I was expecting, not the way I was expecting the night to end. It felt great. Uh, like that, that's more fun in a way, emotionally anyway, than winning a blowout because you just have that surge of adrenaline at the end. It is, feels pretty cool. But, um, you know, hopefully we'll have something a little less heart pounding next week. And we'll talk about Stanford coming to live in Seattle. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. We're going to talk about the upcoming Stanford game, which looks like it's going to happen. The most recent news is that Stanford is going to spend most of the week in Seattle because they can't practice in Santa Clara County or host a game there where they would normally play uh, due to local COVID ordinances. And Seattle is still hosting the game. Uh, The Huskies will now be the home team instead uh, of the away team getting a fourth straight conference home game which is extremely bizarre couldn't find any examples of that in the in the past so do we well how do we handle this they're famous for letting the grass grow super long on their field to slow down the game do you think this would be an opportunity to like trim the field turf extra short as payback would that be fair wait are they i didn't know that that is really funny slash stupid yeah, whenever they would play, you know, I think this was a Harbaugh thing. It might even go back further than that when they play like a super fast team, Oregon, USC, or whoever. They wouldn't mm-hmm. cut the grass all week just to make it slow the game down even more. Um, I yeah, I I just just from my experience playing rugby, I hate that so much. <laughs> <laughs> it should make a difference, but it does. I think the part that would drive me the craziest about it is just how wet your feet would get if the grass was still dewy. Just by the end of the yeah. game, it would be a nice little cushion. It's better than playing on old-school AstroTurf. But uh, sure. just, let's talk a little bit about Stanford, uh, the, the big picture of this team. In terms of uh, S&P Plus uh, ratings, they're 56th best offense, 73rd best defense, aggregate 65th best team, which is not really up to the standard they've set in recent years. Line for the game opened at UW minus 10, it's already up to 11 and a half. So I, some of that might have to do, I, I don't know if that was before it was announced where the game was going to be played in Seattle. Uh, how much do you think the wacky scheduling for Stanford, like this game getting moved, them having to come stay in Seattle, do you think that ultimately matters to the game? Will that have an effect on their ability to perform on the field? Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't, I don't think – I am in a position to really give an opinion on that because, like, I haven't – the closest I got there was redshirting for a year in Canada. Like, like I've never been 
uh, American D1 athlete. So like, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I will say that just from a mental preparedness or mental, just an energy standpoint, that that is, from my perspective, moving around like that is exhausting, um, which can't be that good unless, but you know, there's some people that really thrive on that, um, on that kind of change. I know some people that do. So I don't know. I think on an individual, I think that's kind of an individual basis. Um, but on a program level, I'm not qualified. <laughs> that's saying. fair. Yeah. I, I would guess that there's some effect to breaking routines. And I mean, coaches make a big deal out of making everything as routine as possible. You know, you have your uh, night before the game meal at the same time, you travel the same time, you you know, stay in the same hotels and everything. And this is definitely very different from that. Like every day for the rest of this week is going to be different from anything Stanford has ever done. Uh, practicing on different fields, staying in different hotels and so on. So I, that, if, oh, I was going to say, if, if that mattered in the first place, then it will hurt them. But it's also plausible to me that it never mattered and it's just like weird coach, uh, like control freak <laughs> uh, superstition, something like that. What was your question? I think, oh, my, my question was, do we know where they're practicing in Seattle yet? The only thing I saw is that it's at a high school field, but that may have just been somebody trolling them on Twitter as well. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking, like, if there was, like, a high school place that it would make sense to be, like, Pop Keeney or something. But anyways, um, if anyone does know that, though, like, message us or something. I don't know. I'm just curious. Um, sorry, yeah, I'm I just kind of close to like, Roosevelt. Maybe I'll just go walk by there sometime tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> start throwing things at them. Uh, so this is this is it, it, it's worth talking a little bit about what this Stanford team looks like because I think we have an image of Stanford football kind of ingrained in our mind over the last decade and a half, and this team's pretty different from that. Uh, they they run a lot of three receiver sets. They're more talented at skill positions than they are along the lines. At least that's what their results have shown so far. Uh, they still have a very pro style offense. You know, you see a lot of uh, like balanced play calling. They'll they'll line up under center and so on. But uh, it's a little bit different, it, and it kind of begs the question of whether they can exploit our uh, run defense weaknesses in the same way that Oregon State and Utah did. Just looking at the numbers, Austin Jones is a talented running back, but so far this year he's on a lot of carries is under four yards per carry. So there is, I think in my mind anyway, some question about whether uh, they have the kind of blocking capability to cause problems the same way that Utah and Oregon State did, or if this is going to be more like the Arizona game where they just can't quite get over that hump offensively to really challenge our defense and we can pack the box a little bit more. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, it's no secret that Stanford's – I mean, Stanford's used to be, like, yeah, like you said, their brand was all about, like, the offensive line and everything, and they just year by year have slowly gotten worse in, in, in that respect. Um, I don't think – I think – I don't expect to see us stack the box simply because we never do. Yeah. Um, but, yeah I, yeah, I think it wouldn't be unwise – to do that occasionally but um yeah I the I ironically I know this isn't what you asked but the first thought that comes to mind about their offensive line and this is me being so insanely petty is just from the perspective of Foster Sorrell 
and Connor Weddington being on Stanford, especially um, Sorrell saying that, like, he had always wanted to go to Stanford because their offensive line dominance and everything, and obviously the degree. Just, it's so ridiculous that I'm, like, a grown adult and I'm ish, and I want the, you know, I just want UW to really be able to stuff that running game, even though, you know, who knows if we'll be able to. Um, and I feel absurd saying that. <laughs> I can't. It's, like, ingrained in a part of my brain. I don't know. I don't know why. No, I, I mean, there's, it may be a little bit petty, but it's definitely, like, the desire for retribution makes sense. Uh, the yeah. most recent thing we saw from Stanford, they got their first win of the year last week in the big game against Cal. 24 to 23, you know, very <laughs> bizarre football score. The yeah, people yeah. talked about how the post game win expectancy, some may have seen this for UW, was I think something like 36%. Like we were a little bit lucky by the fact of the things that happened in the game or success rate and things like that to have won the game. Uh, for what it's worth, Stanford's was 10%, and they also won their game. So um, yeah. they were significantly luckier than UW was. Uh, they they had really a pretty terrible game for the most part. They were outgained by 100 yards. They gave up seven yards per carry, but they did get two turnovers. Uh, so, you know, what that makes me wonder is, one, uh, are they going to be able to exploit our offense if like, are we likely to turn the ball over more since that really hadn't been a problem until last week? And like we talked about, that was kind of the product of some weird circumstances. And two, I mean, the recipe here is run the damn ball. I mean, they they're, have had a very bad run defense so far this year. Uh, and it wasn't just the Cal game, but that was, they got absolutely destroyed in that game. Uh, and, and they've done it kind of all season long and it's at least theoretically what we specialize in. So this may be uh, one of those games where John Donovan gets to, to live out his wildest fantasies of fullback dives for an hour and a half. Shut up. I hate that. <laughs> um, no, I know. Um, yeah, I think, well, I don't know if you watched all of the Cal stand all big game last week, but I mean, Cal should have won that game. I mean, mm-hmm. Cal, it, it cannot be emphasized enough how much Stanford didn't win. Cal lost. They had the blocked extra point at the end. They had, I think, blocked. Yeah. Punt. They had a blocked field goal at the end of the first half. Uh, I don't remember who their special teams coordinator is, but I uh, follow like I follow a couple of Cal guys on Twitter, and so I see some of like Cal Twitter that pops up, and um, they all want him to be fired. I don't blame them. They also had similar issues against Oregon State, um, and I'm not saying that so that whoever's listening to this thinks, oh like, yeah, Stanford's a pushover, whatever. But I mean, it really can't be emphasized enough how much they've fallen and how much and how unlucky Cal is to have have such terrible special teams. I mean, yeah, it was it, Stanford didn't look good. They had a few opportune moments that really made the hugest difference, um, and it was kind of pitiful, honestly. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not that Stanford's without talent. I mentioned Jones earlier. No, not Davis at all. Mills was a highly recruited quarterback. His results haven't really matched that yet, but he hasn't been bad. He's just been kind of average in at a Power 5 level, which is still mm-hmm. pretty good. Uh, you know, Connor Weddington's really explosive. Uh, Fahoko, the other the giant receiver, is, can, can, you know, kind of do the things that Stanford giant tight ends and receivers have done in the past. 
I, I even like Nathaniel Pete, the, the change of pace back. I've seen him break off a couple big runs this year, and, and he's definitely has that speed, even if he doesn't have uh, Jones's ability to find holes. But it's not one of those games. I, I, we could see a lot of running on both sides in this game, and that could keep it relatively close and also relatively low scoring because the clock will be spinning. But I, I, it is, you know, if there's a really good unit on either of these teams, it's our secondary. It's clearly the best unit on either of these teams, and that's going to make yeah. it more difficult for them to move the ball um, since they're not an elite run team. And we're we're probably a better run team, and their run defense is every bit as troubling as ours has been. So you do you know kind of the very simple back of the uh, bar napkin math. It's kind of like if we're at a <laughs> at, at worst a push in the run game, we're probably going to be in better shape in the pass game. And as long as we don't make any really dumb mistakes on special teams or dumb turnovers, we're probably going to be in pretty decent shape. And that's probably where you get the the double digit line from. Yeah, yeah, I think you're pretty much right there. Uh, so any final thoughts on Stanford before we move into our recommendation and plug section? Uh, not really. <laughs> I know the answer should be yes. I think, I think I'm, I'm keep going back and forth. Um, as far as my own, like hyping myself up for what to expect of, of realizing that this isn't the same, you know, the last couple of years of Stanford and this year, including hasn't been the same team that we uh, came to know while also realizing that they do have a talent level. I mean, for the first time in a long time, they're underperforming their talent level. And, um, but what you, as we know, when you have a certain level of talent, um, you, sometimes that talent just all, all of a sudden appears in a game, uh, just inconsistently. So, you know, that could happen to us. They could be, um, you know, they could end up better than they've looked um, the first couple of weeks. And so I keep trying to brace myself for that possibility. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that going week by week last year. Certainly like the Stanford game was an example of that. And the Colorado game was like that. It was just kind of in the Cal game too. It's just like these losses where you're like, how did that happen? Like what was, is that the same team that was playing these other games? You know, it, it was just kind of mysterious. I, I felt like that's, we just had one of those games and somehow won it, which makes me feel good about you know i don't want to put it on (laughs) on on chris peterson or jimmy lake like i don't think it's i think that's too reductive i think it's more than just like a a halftime locker room pep talk um i you know give Pete kukowski some credit for making adjustments that did you know kind of get those marginal plays to stop going their way give dylan morris credit for you know when he was given the opportunity to unleash it a little bit that was something you know, they, they turned the offense around, around in a way that we weren't able to turn it around in some of those games the last few years. But just you add up this accumulation of factors, and it gives me hope that we're not going to have any of those games where it was just like, oh, didn't have it tonight. And, you know, we might have games we ultimately lose, but it's not going to just be like we came out flat. It just didn't work. There's at least, like, some some guile or some cunning or some problem-solving ability that, that goes into it. It makes me feel a little bit better about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's do our recommendations. What non-football thing has been um, catching your eyeballs over the last few days? Um, yeah, so um, I am so – nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go, and if you think of anything, you can you can plug it in at the end. Um, I did – have I given – have I said Taskmaster before on here? I think I have. I don't yeah, – maybe, maybe not. 
Oh, I think you actually talked about that last week. I think I did, too. I'll just go with the concept of cheese. I just made a killer grilled cheese sandwich. Uh, Make yourself really good grilled cheese sandwiches. Get the cheese crispy. This is (laughs) how low we are on this year. God damn it. Get the cheese crispy. Okay, you go. I'll, I'll throw a, an extra one in that isn't that is timely, but I didn't actually consume this in the last week. But um, when Diego Maradona died last week, the soccer player from Argentina, uh, it reminded me of the documentary that's on all the HBO family of apps and whatnot called I think it's called Diego Maradona. It might just be Maradona, uh, but it's it's if you ever watch the Amy Winehouse documentary on Netflix, it's the same uh, director producer who put that together, and he does the same thing where it's all archival footage and he. He stitched together thousands of hours of, uh, you know, first-person footage and, and interviews with people who knew him at the time throughout his life and built this incredibly vivid picture. Uh, it, it goes so deep into who he was as a person, who he was growing up, how his life changed, his relationship with drugs and alcohol and the mafia and all these other things, but also, like, who he was as an athlete and what made him one of the most impressive uh, soccer players ever, maybe the, the greatest one ever. Um, at least at one time. Uh, really, really cool. Really, really worth watching um, if you have any of the HBO uh, access to any of those. Even if you're not really a soccer fan, it's just like an anthropological thing. Also just finished um, a book that many, many people have probably read called Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, but um, it was it was great. If, if you ever read uh, Underground Railroad, he wrote a couple years ago. It was maybe a little bit more famous, but he he uh, his style of writing, I guess, is – to kind of do like fictionalized historical accounts, but it's based on something real. And then he kind of researches the hell out of it and plugs in narrative elements to tell the story about the historical thing. And this one's about uh, an abusive reform school in uh, rural Florida in the 1960s. And it's kind of told in that time period by one of the kids who's there and also in the present uh, about, you know, what his life is like after getting out and kind of converging towards how did your time there end? And it has kind of more of a, a plot driven ending than I expected it to have. Cause it was so character based the whole way through. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I'll just leave it at that. But it was like finishing the book is one of those experiences where you get to the last few pages and you're like, Oh shit. Very, very <laughs> didn't, I didn't think he had that tool in his toolbox. I thought it was, you know, he did all these awesome things. I didn't think like surprising you with the plot was going to yeah. be one of them. I can I just say I love for a moment that I'm like my plug is cheese just yeah. conceptually, and you're like here's literature. Well, and if I mean, that doesn't sum, up, sum us up, <laughs> or at least if that doesn't sum up our different approaches to this hellscape of a year, <laughs> then uh, I don't know what does. I mean, it's a lot of bad things this year. It's been a good year for books, at least in the the books that I've read. I mean, I was just thinking about how Obama always does those year-end book lists. And nobody cares what I read, but I was just thinking about going back through my Kindle uh, library and looking at the books I read this year and thinking about, like, which ones were my favorite. It's going to be a a good year for that this year. I would read – I would – I want to see your – Okay, I'll I'll write it down. Do it for me. No one else gives a shit. But do it for me. As we can see by me endorsing cheese, I need more. (laughs) Something to hold on to. Yeah. All right. Well, that's probably, I think we've we've plunged the deaths. So, everybody, thanks for listening and go, dogs. Go, dogs.
DJs. 